And uh, we are excited for you to join us in today's conversation, whether you are online or listening to this on a podcast or whether you are joining us for the first time at one of our campuses. Welcome to the party. Welcome to the Bible study. And I don't know what your week has been like. I find that every week I get up here, I I sense a a level of heaviness at times within the room. Uh, From week to week, we all carry different things and we all have different experiences and inconveniences come our way and trials come our way and we all uh, live life facing uncertainty at times. And, And sometimes I feel the most important thing for me to do every single week is to stand up here and to remind our community Uh, that our God is still good, that he's faithful, that he's loving, that he's merciful, he's righteous, he's noble, he's patient, he's thoughtful, he's creative, he's redemptive, he's forgiving. Come on, you can just go on down the list and folks, he's he's a good God and he's for you. And and don't lose sight of that reality. It's living every single day anchored to uh, that hope. And if you're not a Christian, my goodness, I am just honored uh, that you would join us uh, this weekend as we lean into this conversation. Maybe you will discover uh, the validity of our God and the reality of his desire to work in and through uh, your life. So welcome. This past week, my kids didn't have school on Friday, uh, which meant we got to go to a trampoline park. Anyone ever been to one of these? Wave at me if you've been to one of these trampoline parks. Uh, it's a bit overstimulating for me. Uh, I find that I can tell I'm getting older the moment you put me on a trampoline because my equilibrium gets thrown off. I feel queasy. And uh, we go to this trampoline park and the kids are having a blast. Uh, we actually spent seven hours at this deal. I don't know if it was because my kids were having that much fun or I'm that cheap. It's like, hey, the price of admission was steep. We are gonna get our money's worth. So if you need to take a nap in the corner, go ahead, but we're gonna stay here for a while. And so we, we stayed there and, Uh, As you can probably relate, uh, as your kids are playing, they make friends with other kids. And so our children were, uh, you know, making some relationships with other kids who were there. And my boys uh, made a buddy who just happened to be right in between the two of them. Uh, My boys are 10 and 12, and they meet a kid who was 11, and he's hanging out with them the whole time. And it comes time for lunch. And so we invited him to have lunch with us. And so he sits down to the table, and as I'm dishing out the pizza, I said, all right, let's pray. And And we pray, and as we began to pray, he folded his hands. It appeared he knew what we were doing. And uh, as we got done praying, he said, my grandma prays. He said, well, anytime I go to my grandma's house, uh, she makes us pray like this. And we fold our hands, and she says, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. And my son, Miles, was like, oh, that's so great. I've heard that prayer before. What church do you go to? And this 11-year-old kid just looked at Miles perplexed and was like, what do you mean? And Miles said, what church do you go to? And he said, I I don't understand what you're saying. To which Miles was then confused. And Miles said, what don't you understand? And he said, what does the word church mean? It was just really an eye-opening experience. Here we are sitting here in Hamilton County. And this 11-year-old kid who uh, was a great kid and uh, whatever, but it was just like, he had no idea what, what church was. And that would affirm what so many of the studies and research done on our uh, society and culture would now say that if you are under the age of 25, this is the first generation in the history of America uh, that the majority of those growing up under the age of 25 have no reference or experience 
of church. This is the first non-Christian generation in our nation. And it's just interesting to me because I'm like, Here, here's the next generation right before us. And this kid is 11 years old. He doesn't even know what church is. And that, that just opened my eyes and maybe it'll break your heart to just say, hey, we as a church need to be unyielding uh, in our pursuit of reaching the next generation and letting anyone and everyone know that there is a space where you can come and encounter a living God who has done the unthinkable on your behalf. And what would it look like if every single one of us got outside our comfort zones and started looking beyond ourselves and extending invitations to say, hey, uh, maybe just maybe you've yet to encounter uh, Jesus Christ, and maybe you should come to church with me and see what it's all about. And if that's you and you're, you're new and you're like, I have no frame of reference for church and this is your first experience, uh, well, chances are we just freaked you out and you showed up and it's loud music and you're like, what is going on? Uh, I do promise if you hang out and just stay with us, uh, you'll find that the people next to you are uh, the gold standard and you'll find that they will be a value add to your life. And in addition to that, uh, you will discover the goodness of our God, amen. And in this series, we are addressing relational tension. Uh, the name of this series is How to Pick a Fight, The Art of Conflict. Wave at me if you've got some conflict. Come on, yeah, we all have some conflict, right? And the question is, is there approach uh, to conflict that is different than what the world is offering? Does God's word, does scripture speak to conflict? And this is a fascinating thing because when you go into the pages of scripture, what you discover is God's word, uh, it instructs us to live very counterintuitively and to take on a very unorthodox approach uh, to this idea of relational strife. And last week we we established this idea, and team in the back, I have, <clears throat> I have no confidence monitor, uh, but we established this idea, and that is this. The best time to win a fight is before it starts, right? It's gonna come up there any second. There it is. The best time to win a fight is before it starts, and the idea here is, hey, before you launch into an argument, before you address somebody, uh, before you engage in conflict, pump the brakes and think critically that Peacekeeping and peacemaking is first a mindset before it is a skill set. And it's learning, hey, is there anything that I can do on the front end of conflict that will set me up for better success? And we talked last week about two primary principles that scripture calls us to. One, to live with self-awareness, right? That before we go address somebody else, we should assess ourselves and in addition to having self-awareness, we need to operate with ownership, that we need to fight the tendency and our human nature to place blame because that's, that's what we all do, right? We look to external matters and we say, it's his fault or it's her fault, it's this fault or it's that. And scripture says, no, wise are those and courageous are those who do the hard work internally, who have the integrity to assess themselves and to take ownership. Hey, I'm not, I'm not casting blame. I recognize I am the one thing all of my problems have in common, and there's something that I can take responsibility for. Isn't that annoying that you're the one thing all your problems have in common? I mean, that's why you brought your friend with you today, just so they could hear that one message. You are the one thing all of your problems have in common. And that's true of all of us. And it's just learning to say, how do we lean into this in a better way? And Jesus would speak about relationships all often. And he said this in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. 
He said, blessed are the peacekeepers for they will be called children of God. I love that statement. He's saying, hey, we're, we're called to peace. And he says, and this is the calling card of God's family. Essentially what Jesus is saying is one of the surest ways you can tell a person is on their way to heaven is they're a peacemaker. One of the surest ways that you can tell someone is a part of the family of God is they are a peacemaker. And so much of scripture is placed into this family context. Hey, in God's family, this is how we conduct ourselves. And so at times individuals would write letters that would be included into God's word and they would be addressing family dynamics. And the apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Galatia that was facing some dysfunction because every church has real people with real problems. And he says, brothers and sisters. So he's addressing, hey, those of you who are in this family, So if you're not a Christian, uh, you're kind of off the hook here. This is for us who have anchored our life to Jesus Christ. We've surrendered all that we are to him and we take our cues from him moving forward. And it's his life mission and his purpose that shapes who we are and our identity. And as children of this family, there's a certain set of standards that we tend to operate by. And he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, He's basically saying, all right, let's consider the situation where someone is clearly at fault, which I know you're thinking, finally, last week we talked about ourselves, let's start to talk about other people. He said, all right, well, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit, not by the flesh, Scripture's always creating this distinction, those who live by the spirit and those who live by the flesh, that our faulty nature gravitates towards wrongdoing and unproductive ways of living. And you say, no, those who live governed by the spirit, they take on a different approach. And those who live by the spirit should restore that person gently. This is, this is radically different. He goes on to say, but watch out for yourselves or you also may be tempted carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Going on, he says, if anyone, uh, he's coming for us, thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves, and each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. So, so this is interesting. He's talking about someone who's caught in a sin and the moment he brings it to the surface, he says, all right, if someone is caught in a sin, pump the brakes. You who live by the spirit should restore them gently and you should test your own actions and you should be careful that you don't fall into temptation and that you don't self-deceive yourself, right? And he's, he's immediately saying, hey, just know that when things go wrong, you're gonna be tempted to go with them, but don't do it and develop a composure and a sound mind also that you can operate in a way that is productive, edifying, and beneficial to your relationships. And scripture's always drawn this connection that uh, the quality of our lives is directly influenced by the quality of our relationships. In fact, scripture is at times directing our attention to this vertical axis, our relationship with God, and then this horizontal axis our relationship with others. And what you find in scripture is this principle, and that is you can't be right with God and wrong with people. That one of the best ways to love God is to love others 
well. And one of the most honoring things you can do in your faith is to manage your relationships and conduct yourself in a way that is honoring of God, maintaining your integrity and your character and adding value to the situation. But I think that statement, if someone is caught in a sin, gets our attention because something in us likes to catch others in the wrongdoing. Makes me think of a few years back, I was coaching my daughter Riley's basketball team. She's in fourth or fifth grade at the time. And we would always end the practice with this game called Ships Across the Ocean. It was a version of tag. And essentially, one person would be elected as the captain. They were it. And they would stand in the center of the court and everyone else would get on the baseline with their basketball. And so the kids would then shout out, ships across the ocean, ships across the sea, captain, captain, you can't catch me. And at that point, they would all try to dribble their basketballs to the other side of the court without being caught by the captain. And if they were caught by the captain, they had to put their ball to the side and they had to join the captain in the middle, helping the captain catch other people. And what was weird to me about this game, as I would think about all the times I played tag growing up, is the goal was to get to the other side. That's how you would win. And in my mind, that's the best part about the game, getting to the other side. But this team of girls, all they wanted to do was be it. And so anytime we would start the game, they would just like volunteer as tribute and allow the captain to tag them so they too could be in the middle catching other people. And I thought, man, that's, that's so weird. Why would you do that? That's not even the point of the game. And I say all that because in the same fashion, we as Christians do this as well. We get this sick satisfaction trying to catch people in their wrongdoings. Scripture says a lot about being a fault finder, and I just think we've gotta be very careful that we don't go through life thinking somehow, somewhere along the way, God gave us license to be everybody's fruit inspector, right? And suddenly we're going around measuring everybody's righteousness, and that comes with a massive blind spot. It comes with a ton of dysfunction in your relationships. Know this, you don't have to go trying to catch people in wrongdoing. You just have to live a little, and they'll present themselves to you because people make mistakes. Come on, wave at me if you've discovered people make mistakes. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're at your office, they're in your school, they're in your home. I mean, everywhere you look, people make mistakes, especially when you look in the mirror. Yeah, that only gets like three amens every time I say it. People make mistakes, and so it's learning, hey, maybe I, I have to do a better job of responding when someone comes up short. And this is what he says. He says, hey, when, when someone's caught in a sin, restore them gently, which is actually a physician's term. If you go into the original language and you read you know, the commentaries about this passage, that statement is a physician's term. And what it is implying is when a person would break a bone, a physician would gently reset the bone. And many of you who have been around somebody or maybe you've broken your own leg, you kind of know there's a standard protocol to a broken leg. You have to keep it elevated and you have to keep pressure off of it. And sometimes when we come across people in brokenness, two of the best things we can do is keep the conversation elevated, keep it God honoring and don't apply pressure. We're so quick to put pressure on people who are struggling and the reason why we do this is something in our nature Every single one of us is gonna fall prey to this if we're not careful. 
we become overzealous and very dogmatic about sins we don't struggle with. You ever found that? I mean, you are quick to judge someone who sins differently than you. But every single one of us comes up short and it's, it's amazing how you know, emphatic we are about certain shortcomings and then how lenient and grace-filled we are about others. And I would just say this, when you see a sin that you don't struggle with, remember it is sin that you still struggle with. Every single one of us has a faulty nature. Every single one of us is gonna come up short. And so you might as well respond to others the way you are praying Others will respond to you when you come up short. I mean, this is where we're getting exposed because we call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves children of God. And scripture says, okay, like peacemakers will be called children of God. This is how you would operate in this family. And then a moment happens and we're exposed for not being true to who we said we were. Makes me think of a time a few years ago, my boys and I, uh, went to a restaurant and we walk in and the host immediately sees me. It was like, oh, really quick, I'll be right back. And it got really awkward and it, I didn't know what was going on. And she runs away for a second. She comes back with the manager and the manager has like three waitresses with them. And they're like, sir, we have your table right over here. And they escort us into the back and they've got this nice booth set up and things already on the table. And they brought my boys these little snack trays and later they would even bring them some gift baskets. And the whole time we're thinking, what? is going on. And so they're rolling out the red carpet for us and the service is world-class and the staff walks away and my boys go, dad, what is happening right now? And I said, I, I think they think we're someone else. And sure enough, they thought we were a celebrity. I came walking in, they're like, Neil Patrick Harris, there goes Doogie Howser. Get him his table. And... It was hilarious because the first half of the meal, I mean, the, the staff is serving us and the, the services is world-class. And then you could tell there came a moment where they're like, that's not Doogie Howser. <laughs> I don't know if he showed up and they realized I was a phony. And so we're sitting there in the table and you could just tell they stopped serving us and eventually they're just standing there with their arms crossed. Like, you're, you're a fake, right? And, and I think about that because I just wonder, how many times are we uh, waving the banner? Hey, Christian, child of God, follower of Christ, marked, anchored, altered by grace, and then a moment presents itself for us to be a representation of that grace, and we're exposed, and we don't respond in a way that honors God. And here's something I know you've heard before, and that is this. Hurting people hurt people. And I think wise are those and certainly mature are those who are able to rise above an offense also that they can see the person on the other side of it. At times you're gonna be hurt, you're gonna be offended, you're going to be irritated and annoyed by the behaviors, actions, and communication of others in your life. And it's developing the stature and the spiritual maturity to say, hey, when those moments come my way, I'm able to rise above the offense and look beyond my own hurt to see the person who is hurting because everybody is going through something. I mean, as we sit here at all of our campuses, everybody's going through something. Some of you are in a hard season in your marriage. Others of you, you just got a bad report about your health. Some of you have a child who just made a tough decision. 
Others of you, you're walking through a, a really painful season in your career. And some of you, you're in college and you're just trying to determine or discern as to whether or not to change your degree. And that's coming with a, a lot of stress. Some of you, it's financial stress. Every single one of us is going through something. And scripture is constantly saying, yeah, be the type of person who pays attention to that. Be the type of person who doesn't over-exaggerate your offense to where you miss the person hurting in front of you. I think sometimes a good question to ask is what do mean people mean? Like, like when you have someone acting out in your life and you have someone who's being disruptive or distasteful, sometimes it's learned to pump the brakes and develop a composure and think, what are they trying to say that they're poorly communicating? What do they mean? And at some point, I wanna do a series on all the villains in the Bible. Because I think sometimes we read scripture and we see them as villains and we forget, yeah, God loved them too. And I think of people like a Delilah. There's Samson and Delilah, an old girl was crazy. And what you find is Samson is a threat to this neighboring nation. And so this neighboring nation is constantly trying to plot and scheme and figure out ways to take him out. Well, Delilah uh, is a part of that nation and she is in this relationship with Samson. And so the, the authority figures and wicked men on that side of the deal start to you know, put her in a position, hey, figure out his secrets. And what you find is she, she tricks him three times and a lot of people look at Delilah and think poorly of her. But I, I just wonder what was her reality? I mean, what were the social constructs that she was growing up in? What was the pressure she was facing from those wicked men who were trying to kill Samson? What type of dynamics were at play within her family? Were there threats coming her way? You look at Delilah and you have to wonder, did she even have a choice? And suddenly your, your heart starts to soften a little bit. Maybe, just maybe, this person who we misjudge uh, didn't have a lot of options and they were hurting, not just being hurtful. And I think we all can relate to this, right? People make mistakes, but you have to always consider when you think of a paradigm or a principle or some idea that you believe in, pump the brakes and consider the other side of the coin. Yeah, people make mistakes, but in addition to that, mistakes make people. That's not to say you're defined by your past, but it certainly helps to explain you. That's not to say you're defined by your past, but it is to say you grew up in a home where you had to experience the consequences of a parent. And that's not to say that you know, your past defines you, but you are a victim of abuse. And it's starting to say, wait a second, like not only do people make mistakes, mistakes make people. And a lot of times we're being offended by other people, not considering where are they coming from and what have they gone through? And what pain are they managing? See, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, carry each other's burdens. And then at the end of it, what does he say? Bear your own load. So basically what he's saying, at, at some point as you grow in stature in your faith, you are a responsible, stable individual who not only can manage your affairs, you now have the margin within your life to help bear the burdens of others who are struggling. And have you ever discovered this? The people who know you the least, the people who know the least about you always have the most to say. 
Come on, wave at me if you discovered that. Yeah, the people who know the least about you always have the most to say. And I think we can almost look at that and be like, yeah, we've all ran into that. That is certainly the case. And again, consider the other side of the coin. If we can all admit that it's, it's kind of common knowledge, people who know the least about you always have the most to say, courageous are those who ask the question, when am I guilty of having a lot to say about someone I don't really know? I mean, where am I guilty of jumping to conclusions or making inaccurate assumptions? Where am I just unnecessarily judgmental? And it's learning to just lean into the tension It is learning to ask the hard questions and it is learning to realize that everybody's going through something. And maybe if I can get beneath the surface, I would discover that person is going through it and maybe just maybe my response could add value. You know, I was a few years ago, our kids were, Presley wasn't born, our oldest three were all under the age of four. Three kids under the age of four, many of you can relate to that season. It's chaotic and you have to manage a tight schedule. There's naps and there's times to eat. And if, if you don't stay efficient and productive, you'll mismanage the day. And so we would run around town trying to get errands done. And one year uh, we went to Mall of America. We were living in Minneapolis during the Christmas season, which is madness. And Back then we had this big old double stroller and then Kristen found this like little skateboard attachment at a garage sale. So it would attach to the back of the stroller and so the boys would sit in the stroller and Riley would ride on the back of it and we would push this little stroller limousine through stores. And so we get to the mall and there's no parking. The place is packed. So I pull up to the front door and I drop Kristen and the kids off and we get the stroller out and the little skateboard out and we get them on into the door. And then I go to look for a parking spot. And as I pull into the parking garage, I see one of those open parking spots with the sign that says young family parking or expecting mothers. And I'm like, that's us. I just dropped off the whole unit. And so I start to pull into this parking spot. And as I'm doing so, this car comes flying around the corner. And this lady slams on her brakes. And it wasn't because she was trying to get the spot. It was because she was making sure I didn't get it. And from her perspective, she sees some single guy trying to take the young family parking spot. And in her mind, it's over her dead body. Is she going to allow this injustice to take place? And so she cuts me off and and she's yelling at me. And I can't understand the things she's saying, but a lot of hand motions, a lot of attitude. You know how that goes. And I'm thinking to myself, this is such a weird interaction uh, because here we are at, in this like grudge match. Neither one of us are understanding each other. And this is probably a pretty simple conversation. Uh, I could show you my family photo and the whole unit that I just dropped off. Uh, we actually fit the category of this young family that this sign is talking about. In addition to that, I'm like, what about her story that I don't understand? Was it like 1971 in the middle of a blizzard and some young punk kid took the young family parking spot and she made a vow that day that if I ever see a guy trying to take that spot, I'm gonna, you know, do whatever I can. But it's just weird because I think in life that happens to us all the time. We find ourselves at a standstill where we don't understand each other. And scripture's just saying, yeah, but godly people, Children of God, they lean into that. 
and they press in also they can understand where the other person is coming from. And Jesus, he was, he was masterful at this. He was so brilliant in his ability to respond to others and to overlook an offense. There comes this time in John chapter 11 where Lazarus, one of Jesus's closest friends, dies. Jesus had three close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were siblings. Lazarus dies. If you're new to the Bible, spoiler alert, Jesus arrives on the scene and brings him back to life. It's an amazing story. But before that, word comes to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is dying. And Jesus, for whatever reason, decides to wait. And most of us can relate to that tension. Uh, God, I, I was expecting you to work in my life and you didn't do it as I desired or would hope. And so eventually Jesus makes his way to town, but Lazarus has been dead for four days. And it says that Mary and Martha, they, they come running out to Lazarus. I mean, running out to Jesus. And they begin to express their frustration as most of us would. And they say, hey, if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Essentially what they're saying is, Jesus, in some way, this is your fault. You could have done something about this. And what I love about it is Jesus, knowing what he's there to do, knowing, hey, I'm about to resurrect him from the grave. He doesn't dismiss their frustration. He doesn't take on offense. He doesn't correct or rebuke them. He says, show me to the tomb. And they walk to the tomb and I'm thinking to myself, what would my posture have been if I'm Jesus? Like, cause I tend to take a prank too far. Everyone else, you take a prank too far and like everyone around you has gone sour, but you're still like loving the experience. Like if I'm Jesus, I'm walking to the tomb with some pep in my step. I've got a smirk on my face. I'm like, yeah, I know they're stressed out and they're freaking out, but this is going to be amazing. And this is gonna turn for the good really quickly. If I'm Jesus, I'm smirking. But Jesus comes to the tomb. In John chapter 11, verse 35, it says, and Jesus wept. This is amazing to me. Even though their assumptions are wrong, even though his plan is going to cheer them up, even though their criticism of him may not be accurate, he doesn't dismiss it, he doesn't get offended, but somehow he has the ability to empathize with them. You know, week one, we talked about, you know, self-awareness and ownership. And the two principles in this message would be empathy and gentleness. And empathy, I believe, is an emotional and psychological versatility. It's the ability to respond to the different dynamics, thoughts, and feelings that others are experiencing and going through. And it is learning to come alongside people in the midst of their trials and pain. I, I think sympathy is feeling bad for somebody. Empathy is feeling bad with somebody. Scripture says, hey, we mourn with those who mourn. And Jesus, he, he wept because he realizes, hey, in this moment, though, it's gonna play out differently than they expected. The grief that they are going through is very real. Death is painful. Loss is terrible. And this is something all of humanity is going to have to face. And Jesus, Jesus wept. And I love that because it's so different than how you and I initially respond whenever someone criticizes or offends us. When someone criticizes us and we enter a conflict, a lot of times we're taught and our culture primes us to think this way, 
that the goal is to put them in their place. Right? Oh, I'm gonna settle the record. I'm gonna set them straight. I'm going to put them in their place. And I would just encourage you, don't put others in their place. Put yourself in their place. That's what empathy is doing. That's what Jesus modeled for us. In fact, one of my favorite doctrines is the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus stepped out of eternity, left heaven, came to earth, became man, and essentially stepped into our shoes. And in doing so, extends an invitation for you and I to step into his shoes. It's not putting others in their place. If anything, it's developing the ability to put yourself in their place. And Jesus was great at this. And James, Jesus' little brother, once said this, speaking of relational strife, he said, folks, mercy, it triumphs over judgment. So, so again, we're, we're creating these distinctions. There's the world's way of doing it. There's operating according to the flesh. And then there's godly principles and the kingdom way of doing it and operating according to the spirit. There's judgment on this side. There's mercy on this side. There's putting others in their place on this side. And there's putting yourself in their place on this side. And it makes me think of the, the Elvis song, walk a mile in my shoes, right? Before you accuse, criticize, and abuse, walk a mile in my shoes. And I know what you're thinking, like that's nonsense and I don't have time for that. And I get that. But when you come up short and you make mistakes and you mismanage a moment, Aren't you praying, oh God, please help the people around me step into my shoes. Help them understand to some degree where I'm coming from. Help them respond in gentleness. Because here's what we discovered. You are never persuasive by being abrasive. And so it's learning, I've gotta learn to respond with gentleness and with empathy. So the next time you head into a fight, Consider, what's my goal? What is your goal? What's the agenda? What's the desired outcome, right? The, before you spend, uh, the best time to win a fight is before it starts. And so last week we talked about assessing yourself. Well, before you engage in a fight, you also have to assess your opponent. Before you throw a single punch, you have to take time to consider where are they coming from? And a lot of times we, we don't think about, hey, before I engage, what's my goal? And I think there are really two goals. The first is obtaining victory. Well, just know this, if all you care about is winning the fight, just know that that is going to create more and more dysfunction. Because if the goal is you being the winner, subsequently it is also you making the other person a loser. And that just never plays out well in relationships. So there's obtaining victory, or there's adding value. Again, worldly approach, kingdom approach. And it's just, hey God, would you help me respond in empathy, respond in gentleness? When conflict arises, God, would you help me add value so it opens the door so I can move this situation towards health rather than respond in a way that shuts the whole thing down and adds to the drama? Because here's the deal, which do you prefer? You can either gain a peace of mind, and some of you, maybe that's what you prefer, gaining a peace of mind, or do you prefer giving a peace of your mind? Right, like, which do you prefer, gaining a peace of mind or giving a peace 
of your mind. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I get a front row seat to so many families and relationships, and I'm just telling you, way too many people are walking around with far too much relational regret. And so it's learning to say, hey God, is there an approach that I can develop in my life that will come with less regret? And I'm telling you, doing what's right may not bring about reconciliation because reconciliation takes two people. It'll certainly open the door. It may not bring about reconciliation, but it won't bring about regret. And it's saying, God, I, I, I wanna live in a way that keeps my integrity intact. I wanna live in a way that honors you. I wanna stay above reproach. I want to move this towards health. I want to add value. So help me empathize. Help me be gentle. Help me look beyond the offense and see beneath the surface. God, help me be a person who seeks understanding. And my prayer for you is next time you're in a conflict, seek to understand, not to undermine. Uh, again, this is an unorthodox way of fighting. Instead of putting someone in their place, you're gonna put yourself in their place, right? And instead of giving them a piece of your mind, you're gonna aim for walking away with a piece of mind. And instead of focusing on obtaining victory, you're focusing on adding value. And instead, right, of just moving through the motions of how culture tells us just win the argument. No, no, no. I'm not trying to undermine them. God, help me understand them. Because here's the deal. The better you get at evaluating, the better you get at communicating. And this series, we're moving towards communication. Yeah, we're gonna talk about how do you have those interactions. We're going there. But I think where we are missing it is the best time to win a fight is before it begins. Again, before peace is a skill set, it's a mindset. And we have got to learn to live by the Spirit, aim for godly standards, develop composure, live with empathy, extend grace, model gentleness. And I'm telling you, the world is in desperate need of this kind of example. And so it's just saying, what would it look like in your house if you sought to understand rather than to undermine? What would it look like in your house if you responded with empathy and gentleness? And I'm just telling you, every single one of us knows, as difficult as it's gonna be, that would actually help. It would actually help. And don't you wanna operate in a way that you can say, what I'm doing, it actually helps. In a world so full of hatred and division and quarrels and strife, God, let me be a part of the group who does something that actually helps. And let us add value rather than focus on the victory, amen.